0: Hello and welcome to Ox Tales, the podcast that serves up stories about history and the foods that make it from the Oxford Food Symposium. I'm your host, Anna Sigrether. Every week on the podcast, we pick one paper from the symposium's long history and bring in its author to share their story with you. We hope you're enjoying season two so far. If you're just tuning in now, thanks for joining us. If you enjoy what you hear, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes, and visit our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk, For more information. Also, on our website, if you're able, you can make a donation to support this nonprofit educational podcast. And UK listeners can donate by texting Oxtails20 to 70085. That's O X T A L E S 20 to 70085. Thanks so much. And now, on to today's story. In diets around the world today, many of the most significant crops come from plants originally grown in the Americas. Corn, potatoes, squash, melons, beans, tomatoes, peanuts, chilies, and sweet peppers. The list goes on. But these crops did not just spring from the ground fully formed into the human world. For millennia, the people of the Americas built relationship with these plants, saving seeds and breeding wild relatives into a vast diversity of nutritious, delicious, and abundant varieties. But after the arrival of the Europeans, many indigenous people were dislocated from their land and placed in poverty. And in many cases, their seeds were taken from them to be used by settlers, or sometimes even destroyed. Over the past few decades, there has been a resurgence in indigenous foodways all around North America, led by a dauntless network of people who are bringing back traditional food, knowledge, and ancestral seeds into their communities and onto their tables. Two such people join us today, a chef and an academic, who give us some glimpses into how people are reconnecting with their seeds.
1: Hello, my name is Sean Sherman. I am the owner of The Sioux Chef, also the author of The Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen. I'm also an enrolled member of the Pine Ridge Oglala Lakota Sioux Tribe and I am based here in Minnesota.
2: My name is Elizabeth Hoover. I'm an American studies professor at Brown University, but I'm actually out at Stanford right now at the Stanford Humanities Center writing a book called From Garden Warriors to Good Seeds, Indigenizing the Local Food Movement.
0: Sean and Elizabeth's paper from the 2018 Symposium on Food and Seeds starts off with some important context. In order to understand why this resurgence is happening, we first need to understand how the relationships between people and seeds were diminished in the first place.
2: Yeah, I mean... The diminishment of seed sovereignty and food sovereignty broadly in the U.S. was a very intentional act on the part of colonial governments as a way of weakening tribal governments. So George Washington instructed General Sullivan in 1779 to lay waste to their fields, to specifically go burn the cornfields and burn the supplies of corn that were stored away for the winters to come, forcing Shawnee communities, or Iroquois communities, as they were renamed by the French, as a way of forcing people to um, be at the mercy of the, the newly developed American government for food rations. And this continued on through the relocations. So in the 1830s, the tribes that were relocated from the southeastern part of the U.S. out to Oklahoma or from different Midwest states like Nebraska down to Oklahoma. You know, tribes were moved often um, with very short notice. And so people didn't had, you know, in the case of the folks in Nebraska in the 1870s had planted their fields and didn't get the chance to harvest before they were forced down to Oklahoma.
0: These kinds of tactics were used by the U.S. and later the Canadian governments and left the majority of indigenous people relocated to marginalized and unfamiliar territories where their seeds might not grow. Millions were killed. They often lacked other resources, which left them dependent on the governments and for the first time, in poverty.
1: The biggest PCC happening is even the notion of poverty on tribal communities because people had worked so hard for so long, you know, around their foods, whether they're hunting, fishing, gathering, farming, all of those pieces, and being completely removed from that in a very short period of time, but, you know, basically within a lifetime. I think about my great-grandfather, who was born in the late 1850s and you know he sees his entire life change so fast you know from the time he's young growing up on the plains with the lakota to eventually uh, after like the battle of little bighorn um, moving on to pine ridge agency and then raising his kids through the boarding school systems and homesteading and trying to farm a ranch or whatever might work and you know all of this very oppressionistic state of things that they that were they were surrounded with and just how racist and, and again segregated it was
0: At the boarding schools, which ran from the 19th century up until the early 2000s, the U.S. government tried to stamp the culture out of indigenous children, replacing it with Western ideas and farming methods. The Bureau of Indian Affairs went around trying to convince some communities to farm where they historically never did, or in other cases, to farm using Euro-American seed varieties instead of their traditional ones.
2: So there were all these efforts to disrupt the way the communities had fed themselves for a long time.
0: Meanwhile, European immigrants were arriving by the boatload and being given all of the prime land, which had been stripped from tribal governments, settling westward. The U.S. government wanted to create a stable market for these new farmers, and so, in the 1930s, the Commodity Food Supplemental Program was born.
2: The Commodity Food Program was developed initially not to feed people per se, but to stabilize agricultural prices and to come up with a way of dispensing of the excess All the food was highly processed so that it could be stored well.
1: You know, it was never meant to be a nutritional program. It was designed to create a surplus of foods, um, you know, for military, for hospitals, for um, school systems, and for the Native American reservations. But it's a, you know, it's a lot of really cheap food that's, you know, made by the lowest bidder to the government.
0: And so on a lot of Native American reservations, people became dependent on these commodity foods for survival. Suddenly their diets were sky high in things like white flour and white sugar. And unsurprisingly, along with that came health problems.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Native people suffer from the highest rates of diabetes and other metabolic illnesses of any ethnicity or race or group in the country. And that's in part because of a lack of access to healthy traditional food.
0: After a while, though, these unhealthy commodity foods became a kind of symbol for survival.
1: But, you know, growing up, people were very proud of living off of the commodity foods and had a lot of these kind of, you know, like res recipes, you know, with government cheese and whatever canned foods. And they became comfort foods.
0: This is especially true for a dish called fry bread a quick bread made from white flour and fried in fat.
2: Oh, yeah, because people have those emotional connections to it, so that if this is something that your grandmother makes for you and makes you happy, and it's seen as this survival food, this sort of take what you're given and make something beautiful out of it, then people are resistant to having people come along and say, no, this is bad for you. This thing that you associate with your aunties and your mom and your grandma making it for you should be rejected in favor of, you know, vegetables. People can be a little resistant to that.
0: Fry bread encapsulates one of the challenges that someone like Sean faces as a chef, trying to bring traditional ingredients back into focus. The conflict between what's comfortable and what's healthy, and what even represents identity.
1: There's no reason that fry bread should represent all the indigenous communities throughout the U.S. because we're so diverse and we have such amazing food systems all around us and we should be celebrating our our true traditional food ways, you know, depending on the region and the traditions that are out there.
0: The thing about knowledge is that it's not physical, and therefore presumably easier to lose... That's what the government was banking on when it took indigenous children away from their families and placed them in boarding schools, when traditional seeds got replaced by commodities. But traditional knowledge is tied to both the physical and metaphysical worlds. Seeds are physical living entities that grow, reproduce, and adapt. Seeds are enduring and powerful, and can lie in wait until the best time to germinate. Sometimes the seeds had to wait a long time. In their paper, Elizabeth and Sean cite the historian Christina Gish Hill, who says that the colonization of seeds happened in a very similar way to the colonization of land. They were seen as a resource that could be exploited. There was the parallel assumption that seeds, like children, would not be able to reach their full potential in the hands of indigenous caretakers and therefore needed to be taken away and safeguarded. So where are many of these seeds now?
2: Some of these seeds are really beautiful, and they wind up in museums. They wind up, you know, as collections that we're going back to now and looking at. But also used to develop the the types of seeds that then settler farmers are planting. So, you know, corns were collected from tribes and then used to develop new types of field corns and sweet corns.
0: The colonial approach of seeing seeds as a mere resource lay in stark contrast to the way that seeds were and continue to be held by the communities they come from. Elizabeth spoke about this with people at a lot of the projects she visited.
2: In the interviews that I was doing with some seed keepers, you know, Native folks who are part of the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance and the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network, what really came out was the idea of seeds as relatives. So not just, you know, what are farmers' rights and what is, you know, the, the public good, but thinking about seeds as their own entities and how do we relate to those seeds and how do we make sure that people can maintain a relationship with those seeds.
0: One of those seed keepers, a man by the name of
2: Clayton Bracope, talked about, you know, protecting our living relatives and making sure they don't get imprisoned or molested and he relates imprisonment to people patenting seeds and alienating communities from their seeds that way, or molestation to genetic engineering and what happens if somebody takes your living relative and takes it apart on a genetic level and then you know uses that work to enhance and create other seeds so it was about you know thinking about seeds as living relatives and how do you ensure that they continue to have a relationship with other people in your family and in your community so that people can continue to plant them and learn from them and and eat from them
1: yeah and you know coming from the kitchens and really focused on You know, really trying to find out, you know, how many of those seeds were still out there. And I feel like that was a connection not only to the seeds, but also to our own ancestors in the past who utilized these exact pieces. And it's something that's really special. And, you know, you can really feel it. You can feel that energy in the room when you're serving something really unique.
0: The word for the process of seeds being returned to their home communities is rematriation a word that mohawk seed keeper Rowan White uses in her work.
2: It's highlighting the role of women seed keepers as opposed to repatriation, which really sounds very masculine.
0: So now we come to a few rematriation stories from different places around the United States. And along with them, some tales of the delicious creations that have resulted. The first story is a story from Minnesota and starts in the 1930s with an amateur American botanist named Wesley Hiller.
2: Great, so maybe I'll tell the first half of the story and Sean can pick it up where he then takes and makes beautiful, delicious food out of it. So there were ethnobotanists, you know, people or people who styled themselves as such, who went around collecting these seeds. And Wesley Hiller was this dentist-slash-anthropologist, because people were really kind of jack-of-all-trades, I guess, in the uh, 1930s and 40s, who went around the Upper Midwest collecting all of these different seeds from communities
0: squash, beans, corn, tobacco. Hiller even supposedly gathered seeds from archeological dig sites.
2: And then when he passes away, his family in the 70s donated his whole collection to the Minnesota Science Museum. And then there were people there who were interested in kind of studying and curating them and deciding that maybe we should see if some of these can still be planted.
0: The Minnesota Science Museum began a garden project growing out some of the seeds from Hiller's collection. One of the seeds in the collection was Dakota yellow flower corn, a variety from the traditional Dakota homeland around Minneapolis.
2: So then Scott Shoemaker, who is from the Miami tribe, joined the museum in 2009 and thought, okay, so it's interesting that people are starting to try to grow these out and see what they're like, but why don't we now connect them to the communities that they were originally collected from?
0: So he reaches out through his connections to see who in the area would be interested in growing out the Dakota flower corn in their communities.
2: Scott then ends up partnering with people like Dream of Wild Health and the Shakopee, Midwaka, and Wajupi Farm and the White Earth Land Recovery Project. And they start growing out some of these seeds that had been in the collection. And now, um, you know, when we talked to Diane Wilson, who was the director of Dream of Wild Health, she was saying that they have enough corn growing in that field, that it's not just about propagating and getting enough seed now, it's that people can start eating it again. And you know, this is where the, the chefs come in, because um, people don't have that relationship with seeds unless they have the opportunity to really enjoy tasting them and eating them incorporating them into their lives in that way.
0: As Elizabeth says, indigenous chefs are key in rematriation projects to get these foods back on people's plates. Traditional ingredients may seem intimidating to cook at first, and chefs have the knowledge to show people how, as well as how delicious they can be. Sean and his sous chef team have used some of the Dakota yellow flour corn at a five-course dinner event in Minneapolis in a dish that also contained dehydrated rabbit, toasted walnuts, and a berry jus. The joy, Sean says, is all about taking traditional ingredients that had all but disappeared from use and making them into dishes that people want to eat.
1: We just try to entice people to show them you know, how fun it is to play with indigenous foods and how many how many recipes we can come and like how much creativity can be within utilizing all of these wonderful foods and really showing these values of all the foods you know not just the agricultural pieces but everything you know the wild foods and the meats too
0: moving on from traditional dakota territory in minnesota the next story takes us to the traditional mohawk territory in new york state
2: Mohawk territory used to stretch through, you know, all of what is now known as Eastern New York, and then as settlers became more dense and aggressive, um, people got pushed north, and so now Mohawk communities are almost all in Canada, and, you know, Akwazesne is kind of a little bit down into New York and Kanionge and, and Kanijohalegi or newer communities that have been developed back on Mohawk territory. But the Hudson Valley is this lovely rich farmland um, that's now all farmed by non-native people.
0: And so seed keeper Rowan White has been working to change that, collaborating with a non-native run farming project in the Hudson Valley called the Seed Shed.
2: Ken Green, who works with the The seed shed and the Hudson Valley Farm Hub is friends with Rowan White, and they were talking about, um, you know, what would it mean to get Mohawk crops back onto that land there? And it happens that the Pilgrim Pipeline was slated to come through some of the fields that are part of the, the Hudson Valley Farm Hub.
0: Pilgrim Pipeline proposed running two lines, 178
2: miles long from Albany all the way to Linden, New Jersey. And so the idea was developed to create this native seed sanctuary back on land where those you know, Mohawk seeds used to grow hundreds of years ago and in the path of this pipeline. And the, the first The batch of crops that was selected to be grown out included the Mohawk red bread corn, which had gotten down to one cob of corn that was given to Steve McCumber by a friend of his.
0: Steve McCumber is a Mohawk seed keeper who had been growing out this endangered red corn, but didn't have the space to ensure it was preserved. So Rowan White and Ken Green brought it down to grow at the sanctuary in the path of the pipeline.
2: And so it was a great way of You know, putting that land to use as an act of resistance to say, no, we really don't want this pipeline coming through now. And really, are you going to run over these heirloom seeds much in the same way that the Ponca tribe planted their sacred corn out in Nebraska in the path of the Keystone Pipeline. And so, yeah, it was a way of growing out and multiplying this corn that has gotten too rare, but also putting that land to good use. And then, you know, Sean cooked and and made some fabulous dishes for folks down in New York with it.
0: They cooked and served a meal at the James Beard House, home of the prestigious New York Culinary Organization, in 2017, as a celebration of Sean's sous-chef cookbook.
1: You know, we just had a lot of fun with that menu because we themed it the indigenous foods of Manhattan, and it was really to prove a point that even a place like Manhattan that still could be done, you know, use a lot, utilizing the knowledge that we were gaining with, you know, searching for some of these indigenous seeds that are still alive that are particular to that very area, looking for a lot of the wild foods and flavors that really represent that region and pieces that would have been growing naturally on Manhattan if it wasn't, you know, completely urbanized.
0: They used the seafood, wild game, and foraged plants that still grow around the Hudson Valley. And, of course, the Mohawk red bread corn.
1: You know, in a very famous place that celebrates food from around the world, indigenous food is probably very rare to be found at that venue. So it was a really great venue to pull that dinner off.
0: The final story of the day is one that complicates the idea of rematriation in an important way. It's a story about a beautiful orange squash whose origin became subject of a not-so-urban legend that spread quickly from garden to garden in seed-keeping communities over several years. The squash is called Gete Okosiman, and Elizabeth tells its story.
2: So, the story that had gone around was that a farmer in Menominee territory in the state of Wisconsin found a clay ball in his field and he gives it to an archaeologist and they crack it open and there's seeds in there and they're carbon dated to be 800 years old. And so, and then they were like, oh, I wonder if these seeds will sprout. And they did. And it produced this big old, like, you know, oblong squash that's very, you know, has this rich, delicious orange flesh. And everybody, wanted to be part of having a connection with this squash. And so when I traveled around in, in 2014, I went to 40 different communities and I would say two thirds of them were growing the gete eicosamen, you know, the the cool old squash, as it was called. And they loved this story and little kids loved this story and school gardens were growing it because it was like, look how smart Indians are that we could invent this technology, develop this seed ball that would save seeds for 800 years. Like, this is amazing. I want
0: to be a seed keeper too. Getae ochocimin seeds soon became a hot commodity at the trading tables at farming conferences, and everybody was telling the amazing story of the clay balls. Stories kept getting written about the gete, but always in that apocryphal way, with no actual facts.
2: And then somebody wanted to interview, like, who was the archaeologist? Who was the farmer? How can we get more of the backstory? And it turned out that. The actual story was this, you know, guy from, you know, that was this uh, farmer seedkeeper guy traveled with a Menominee artist down to Miami territory because the artist was exchanging some art for something else. And the ladies, the Miami ladies there, who had been growing out this squash, you know, forever, gave them some squash and
0: seeds. That was the Geteo Kosaman. But it turned out that on a completely different excursion, the same seedkeeper had gotten some seeds from a clay ball which had been found in a cave in Kentucky. He had tried growing those seeds out, but the squashes that grew from them, which were not the gette, were very bitter, and so he stopped.
2: So the, those two stories got conflated. The, the Miami squash got conflated with the seed ball from Kentucky. It's an interesting combination. It's, you know, people combined all these different stories inadvertently, but part of it really demonstrates um, that people were excited about the idea of indigenous technology working well.
0: But there's something buried inside the story of the Gete that also exists in a lot of narratives about indigenous foods and culture. This idea that they only exist in the past.
2: And the problem then with that is that it kind of erases all of the Miami people who continued to grow that squash out after all those years. So it's almost, it's more miraculous to keep a squash going for time immemorial almost than it is to, you know, squirrel it away and hide it for 800 years. So it's, the real story was a lot slower to get around than the other story because it's just not quite as catchy and exciting.
0: The true story of the Gete may not be as catchy and exciting as the legend, but just as with the mohawk red corn and the Dakota yellow corn, it challenges the way we talk about things being lost. It reminds us of the infinite power and potential inside just a few seeds. Like seeds, stories too are powerful. And the people in the stories today wield that power as they look toward the future with the tools of the past, seeding not just corn and squash, but a movement for health and for culture.
1: It's great to see all the stories and all the seeds that are coming out of it and how this movement has really just bubbled out in such a short amount of time um, and how many people are just getting on board. It's, It's kind of an exciting time.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Oxtails Today. Please subscribe to us, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Big thanks to our guests today, Elizabeth Hoover and Sean Sherman. Their symposium paper, The Answers to Our Ancestors' Prayers Seeding a Movement for Health and Culture, will be published in the 2018 proceedings this summer in 2019. You can follow Elizabeth on Twitter at Blue Fancy Shawl and Instagram at Liz Hoover. And Sean's Twitter at Chef underscore Sean or Instagram at at the underscore Sue underscore Chef. Learn more about Sean's organization at www.natives.com. Oxtails is produced by me, Anna Sigrether, and mixed by Thomas Krause. Editorial oversight is provided by Naomi Duguid and Fiona Sinclair. Our theme music is by Thomas Krause. Oxtails is made possible both by the Friends and the Board of Trustees of the Oxford Food Symposium. If you like what we're doing and you want to help make Season 3 a reality please consider making a donation on our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk. Listeners in the UK can donate £20 by texting the word Oxtails 20 to 70085. That is O-X-T-A-L-E-S 20 to 70085. Other music in this episode was by Ava Glendinning, Thomas Krauss, Uriter, and George Lewis and his New Orleans Stompers. Sounds accessed from freesound.org and archive.org. To learn more about the Oxford Food Symposium, that website again is oxfordsymposium.org.uk. Follow us on Twitter at Oxford Food Simp, and Instagram at Oxford Food Symposium. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to us and give us a good review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much, and we'll be back next week with some more Ox Tales.